Good evening, church. I've got my mark here in James, and I realize I need to move that now. Um, It's stuck, that's right. Let's open our time together with, with the word of prayer. Lord, it's a, it's a joy to come before you. It's a joy to come before you with your people. Father, we know the story of the gospel well. Help us to understand it. Help us to grasp it. Help us to get a sense and a feel for all the work and all, uh, all that you have done to bring that to pass. Father, I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you that you give us the joy of living life together and loving one another and caring for one another. And we pray, Father, that you would use this church to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray specifically, would you please bring a sense of renewal a sense of revival among us. We're asking that you would pour out your spirit in a special way, that we would see you with more clarity. We've just sung to open our eyes because we want to see Jesus. Lord, let that be the cry of our hearts. We pray, O oh God, that you would do this for the glory of your Son, that we would know and that all the world would see you as you are, beautiful and worthy of praise. Father, I pray that tonight, that as we open your word, and as we try to understand it, and as we try to apply it to our lives, would you give us understanding? Would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law? Help us with this by your spirit. I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Lord, we want to hear from you. So would you answer our cries Let us see you, let us hear you, and then help us to honor you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, tonight we are beginning a new study, a new series uh, through the book of Samuel. When I say Samuel, I'm referring to the two books that are in our Old Testament. In the the English Bibles, they're divided up into two separate parts. Uh, But in the Hebrew Bible, originally, 1 and 2 Samuel were not two books. It was just one book. It was just just one book, the book of of Samuel. There are 55 glorious, sometimes mysterious chapters in the book of Samuel. And so we're going to spend some time looking uh, at this book in the coming months. Now, for most of us, the book of Samuel is a book that we only study as children. We only dip in for the fun Bible stories. We may be inclined to, you know, think of the book of Samuel just as a place where there's a couple exciting stories like the story of David and Goliath or the feud between David and Saul or the friendship of Jonathan and David or the selection of David as king or the return of the ark and then the losing of the ark and the returning of the ark or maybe it's the story of of great battles and military triumphs, a, a book of constant war with the, with the Philistines. The book of Samuel is full of adultery and murder and great conspiracy and rebellion. It is a book with a plot and with action. 
But most of us, most of the time, if we even bother to take, to take the time to read Samuel, it takes about five hours. I commend it to you. Uh, it's a little bit harder to get under your fingers than James, but uh, it takes about five hours or so, about five hours and ten minutes. Um, but when we bother to read it, we usually don't think about it very carefully. We just kind of dip in, grab a story, find some moral, and then we're out. But that's not how God intends for the book of Samuel to be, to be read. It's not a book of isolated individual stories with, with a fun moral or a cute lesson. Often we can grow bored with these truths or even these, we even consider them to be shallow. I had two different people and uh, many of our Sunday school classes are using the Gospel Project and uh, recently we studied the story of David and Goliath and I had two different people come to me and complain they already know the story. So why study it? My goodness. Because it's God's word. <laughs> and we, it's like, I've already, I, I ate last week. Why would I need to eat again? Right? That right? It's, this is God's word. And, and, and I want to try to convince you that the book of Samuel is worth our careful, extended, expectant, excited consideration. There's many reasons why we should study the book of Samuel. The perhaps most basic and the most fundamental is one worth remembering. This is God's word. In 2 Timothy, we're reminded that all scripture, what's that word there? All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Samuel is God's word. 55 chapters, some 90 pages of God's words. And it's useful for us. It is profitable, Christian, for your growth in righteousness. I think that we could say, we absolutely can say that without the truths of 1 and 2 Samuel, you cannot grow into the Christian God intends for you to be. Have you thought of that before? It's true for all of the Bible, but without the truths of Samuel, you cannot grow into the Christian that God intends for you to be. But there's another major reason that we should give our attention to this book, and it's a big one, and it's often forgotten. So much of the New Testament builds on the truths of the Old Testament, and this includes Samuel. Anytime you see the word David in the New Testament, it's referring back to the book of Samuel. There's almost 60 times that we see the word David appear in the New Testament. And if you've read your Bible carefully, you know that David is a very, very, very important name in the New Testament. It has, it's not just referring to a person, but it has a lot of theological weight. Samuel is a book of history. It's not a letter. James was a letter. The Gospels are an account, a narrative that is crafted in a specific way. And Samuel is a history. It's a big history. And one of the key storylines that dominates the pages of Samuel is how Israel gets a king. Now, this is important. We may be tempted just to think, okay, I know he gets King Saul, you know, then David, then Solomon, you know, it gets bad from there. But, but, but we really need to be careful as we think about how Israel gets a king. So often, the phrase that we're going to hear is God's anointed, the anointed one. 
And it's a phrase that we will see is a central theme, not just to Samuel and not just to the New Testament. And I would even say not even just to the whole Bible, but it is central to the history of the whole world. The king. Where is the king? Give us the king. The king. Instead of me just telling you this, I want to try to show you this. That, we, that you would feel some of the significance and some of the context of what's going on here. I hope you brought your Bibles tonight because tonight we're going to do some Bible drilling. We're going to do a lot of flipping. and so. But I want to start and I want to encourage you to look through some of these because uh, a lot of the texts that we're going to look at, you may be kind of vaguely familiar with or you may have read them before but never thought that they were very important. Important, but they are, they're important. I'll tell you the ones that are the most important. But I thought that it might be helpful for us to start not in Samuel and really not even in Genesis, but to flash forward to the New Testament to a couple texts and see some of the significance. The, the significance of how the theme of Israel's king matures throughout the scripture. I am praying and I am quite convinced that as we study this, the book of Samuel, it's going to help us read the New Testament better. That's a big, big reason. We're, tonight, I don't even want to tell you how many genealogies we're going to talk about. Close the doors. All right, we're going to talk about a lot of genealogies tonight. And we're going to see that there is significance to them. So let me, let me invite you to flip to Matthew chapter 2 first. Matthew chapter 2. And after our time together tonight, maybe when you go home, flip back to this and see if this text has even more meaning once we're done. Let's start in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 verse 6. Look at this, look at this closely. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. One of the things that we notice from this text is we are told out of Bethlehem, a specific physical location. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then from the person of Judah, the land of Judah, and the lineage of Judah will come what? A king. Now, if you look around in your Bible, what part, where, where are we reading from? This is the birth narrative. We are being told at the beginning of Christ's birth, we are referencing back the importance of Bethlehem and Judah and the king that will come. But this is a king that is not like anyone expected. Flip now over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 verse 29. You can listen if you want. This is a more familiar passage. Mark 8, 29. This is one of the climaxes of the gospel of Mark. This is Peter's confession of who Christ is. Mark 8, 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Let's think about that for a moment. 
Jesus is asking Peter, who am I? What is my identity? To you, who am I? And Peter's response is what? You are the Christ. Well, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And Messiah is the word for anointed one. Peter is saying, you're the king. You're the king. You are the long-awaited king that we have been told is coming. One more text for now. Flip over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 5. Matthew 21, 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is, of course, at the beginning of the triumphal entry coming where Jesus came back into Jerusalem before he was crucified. We see this is a text that is quoted from Zechariah 9, chapter 9, far before Christ is born, teaching us that the king will come and he is not a king like anyone ever expected. What kind of king rides a donkey? What kind of king makes his way to a cross? Christ was crucified under a sign that said what? King of the Jews. We are going to see in First and Second Samuel how, how Samuel picks up on the story that really begins at the beginning of time. And it's the story of how we are to await a king and it helps us understand Jesus' identity even as he made his way, the king on a donkey, the king on a cross. And we could even snap, flash forward to Revelation where we know that he is the king of kings. He is the anointed one, the king. But in Samuel, we're picking up on a story in the middle that begins at the beginning of time when we find ourselves asking, who is the true king of the world? Who is the true king in Israel? Who is the true king of God's people? Now from our vantage point, from where we are in redemptive history, this is an easy question, right? We say, hey, yeah, Peter got it, Peter got it right. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the Messiah, the king, God's anointed one. Christ is king. Well, Samuel tells us the story of how God reveals this truth to the world. We have many advantages and blessings living at this time in redemptive history. We have the full revelation of God's word. We have the Bible. We have the whole Bible. But one of the disadvantages is that so often we forget how this came to be. Fundamental to the Christian faith is that God has revealed himself to the world. God has spoken. We call this revelation. God has spoken to the world. And it's important for us to realize that God's revelation of himself did not come all at once. It's been slow. It's been gradual. It's been progressive. It has been gradually and slowly over time, even over thousands of years, God has been revealing himself in portions 
to his people. God has not plopped himself in our laps, you could say. God has not ripped off the curtain allowing us to see all of him. He's been gradually pulling back the veil and allowing us to see more and more of what he is like. You would be helped to remember the Bible is the progressive. That means gradual revelation of who God is and what he's doing. So if we want to know God, if we want to, we have to know him on his own terms, which means we have to read the Bible on its own terms. So often as I talk with people about the Bible, this is one of the key things they don't understand is that the Bible is progressive, slow, gradual, unfolding revelation. So when we read in Samuel, we need to remember what has been revealed and what has not yet been revealed. But of course, we get to read it from the perspective of the, having the full scriptures and knowing who Christ is. So we want to understand the Bible's progressive revelation. We know God could have done it all at once. He could have on the seventh day created the Bible, right? He could have given it to us, but he didn't. God intentionally and purposely revealed himself gradually. When you come to understand this truth, you will find your Bible reading is much more fruitful because it's, it's, really, it's really helpful. So what I want to, tonight's going to be different than, than uh, it maybe even feels a little different than a normal sermon. But what I want to try to do tonight, even before we get started in Samuel, is to do something of a 30,000 foot review of what comes before Samuel. So I'm going to preach through from Genesis 1 to Samuel 1, 1. Right? So again, lock the doors. Uh, but, but this is going to be helpful for us because Samuel assumes that we understand so much about what has happened. And so we need to understand understand that. Perhaps this would be a good time to note that the way that we approach our study to Samuel will be very different than the way that we approached James. For one, it would take like 16 years to do it if we did it at that same pace. So we're not going to, we're going to do a different pace. And even though tonight we're doing one verse, um, but you've heard of the expression, don't miss the forest through the trees. You've heard that before? Okay, well, well, we can apply that here. Um, it's, it's, it's really helpful. But, you know, so often in James, we would linger and study one or two or three verses at a time. And that was great. That was helpful for us. But that's not how we'll approach James. James was a letter, right? But Samuel is a big history. It's, it's intended to be read as a whole, placing it in a historical context. And as we study Samuel, we'll, in a sense, focus more on the forest than we will the trees. Because that's what, that's what the author intends us to do. So, so keep that in mind. In James, we often focused on the tree or the leaf or the pine needle, or the bug on the pine, or we, we zoomed in, but in Samuel, we're going to be zooming out much more. And what's, I love this about God's Word. God's Word is infinitely deep. It can handle our micro approach, and it can handle our macro approach. You can zoom in and find beauty, and you can zoom out and find beauty, and everywhere in between, God's Word is beautiful. It can handle our interest. It can keep your attention. So for our purposes, we're going to be focusing mostly on the forest. So as we're walking through this, I encourage you, try to keep the big themes, the big plot points in mind. So with all that as, as, as something of an introduction, let's, let's start at the beginning and let's think about what has happened in the scriptures up to this point. 
We know that the story begins with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. We know that God is the creator of the world. And since he's the creator of the world, that means he is the ruler. He is the king. He made it. He gets to rule it. Revelation 4.11 reminds us, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. We're reminded that since he created He deserves to be worshipped. And we know that all of creation was good. And at the pinnacle of creation was man. The Bible teaches us that, that God made man in his image. And part of what that image means is that we are to be rulers like him on the world. We don't get to rule the world independently. God has not made us sovereign, isolated, independent kings, right? That's not the case. We rule under his rule. We don't rule independently, but under his rule. We are stewards. We are caretakers. We are ambassadors. Early on, we see the, that the sovereign God, he exercises his rule through his word, but also through his people. God rules the world through his people, through humans who submit to him. But the problem is that humans don't like that. We did not submit to him. Adam and Eve, the first men, rebelled against God. They rejected his rule. They were deceived by a talking snake and they chose instead not to submit to God's rule, but to rule themselves. To rule themselves. The problem is God did not intend for man to be independent rulers. We were made to depend on God as our loving ruler. And our rejection of God's rule is treason. Treason must be punished. And the punishment for sin we see in Genesis chapter 3 is what we refer to as, as the curse. The curse, or we could say the result of sin, is the big word for it is it's death. We wanted to rule ourselves, so God turned us over to our desires. He said, you want to rule yourself? Fine. But man's rule led to chaos. Part of the curse is the creation itself rebelled against man. Now the creation produces thorns and floods and earthquakes. The creation rebelled against man. Not only that, but we know that the relationship between humans, the man and the woman, now that is strained and there's hostility and and conflict. And we see, just a few chapters later, we see murder. It's part part of the result of the fall. But worst of all is that man's relationship with God was fractured. Man was kicked out of the garden and placed outside. But you see, here's the problem. Man cannot live without God. And so, now, because of sin outside the garden, because of man's desire to rule himself, man will die. We cannot live apart from God, so we'll die. At this point in Genesis, things look really bleak. But in Genesis 3, there's a glimmer of hope. Flip over to Genesis 3.15. This is a really really key passage. Genesis 3.15. This has often been called the first gospel, the first appearance of the gospel in the Bible. In Genesis, you can just look as I describe it. In Genesis 3.15, we see that God makes a promise. 
He makes a grand promise, a promise to make all things right again. His promise is that through the seed of a woman, the serpent will be crushed. The head of the serpent will be crushed. Friends, think about this. What is seed of a woman? The victory of God will be through a birth. The victory of God is going to come as a baby. The victory of God will be a little child. But before it gets better, things get worse. All the effects of sin spread and multiply. In Genesis 4-11, through 11, and it's interesting that uh, this could be even thousands of years that take place between Genesis 4 and Genesis 11. But either way, the chapters are years of darkness. But then in Genesis 12, we come to another key place. Flip over to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we read of the covenant of redemption that God made with Adam and Eve. It's the covenant that he made with Noah. I believe there's just one major covenant in the Bible. The covenant God made with Adam and the covenant he made with Noah and then the covenant he made with Abraham. It's one covenant continued and renewed and expanded. But what's happening is the covenant is getting bigger. These are perhaps the most important verses in the Old Testament in many ways. Let's read these together. Maybe I should go there. In Genesis 12, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Okay, there's three core components that you need to see here as a part of God's promise. If you can track with these three things, and if this is going to help you, I don't see how you can understand the Old Testament without Genesis 12. God makes a covenant to Abraham, and he tells him that in this promise, there's three components. And this is a covenant that's, it shows up again in chapter 15, and it shows up again in chapter 17. But the three components of God's promise are that I'm going to make you a great people, a great nation. And I'm going to give you a land, right? You have to have somewhere to live. And through you, I'm, I'm, not only am I going to bless you, but I'm going to use you to bless the world. Three components. A, a nation, a land, and a blessing. God promises Abram that from his body, the promised seed will come. And that promised seed will become a people. And that people will become a nation. And that nation will have a home. A land. And this nation will have the blessing of God and it will be a blessing to all other nations. The rest of Genesis covers just four generations of this family. It's Abraham and his sons and their sons and their sons. And towards the end of Genesis, we know that Abraham has Isaac and then Isaac has Jacob and then Jacob has 12 sons. The family is growing. God is keeping his promise. Now, yes, there's challenges and there's bumps along the way, but God seems to be keeping his promise. Flip over to Genesis 49. This is a key one that you may not be as familiar with. So we're nearing the end of Genesis. We have seen God's promise to Abraham and now his, his miraculous children are starting to grow. They're not really a nation yet. There's only a couple dozen of them. But here we see... Um, 
we see another key part of, of the story. The context here is that Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons. Now, I want you to notice, look down in verse 9. Let's read about the blessing for Judah. Remember, we've already heard Judah's name a few times in the New Testament. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, I realize this is strange language. We don't talk like this. A lot of this is hard to track. But hopefully you were able to recognize there's king language here. This is talking about a king. A lion-like ruler is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And we learn a couple things about him. He's going to rule forever. He will get perfect obedience from the nations. And he is going to rule perfectly. This is so important for Samuel. This king that comes from Judah will rule forever. He will have perfect obedience. And he's going to rule perfectly. Now all of a sudden we've learned that the seed, right? The seed of the woman from Genesis 3. These children. The promised baby. We know that he's going to be a king. And here we read about Judah saying, Judah, from your family, there's going to be a king. He's going to have a scepter and will never be taken away from him. And he's going to have the obedience of all peoples. This baby, this promised baby from Genesis 3 will be a king. Do you all see that? Do you see how we got there? This promised baby will be a king. And he's going to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. Remember? Adam and Eve were created to rule for God, but they didn't do it. They turned in on themselves, yet this baby serpent crushing king, he will perfectly rule the world under God's rule the way that he intended it to be. The seed will be a king. Now as we move into Exodus, we see that the story picks up about 400 years later. If, you try, if you're familiar with the story, we know that now Israel is a people. 400 years have gone by. There's been a lot of babies, a lot of birthdays, right? And they are, they are now a massive people. But the problem is that Israel, though they are a nation, they're not a blessed people. Remember? What are the three parts of the promise? They're going to be a people, a great nation, and they're going to have a land, and they're going to be a blessing to other people, and they're going to be under God's blessing. Okay, well, now they're a people, but they're not... They can't. I mean, how can they be a blessing? They're not really under God's blessing. They're in slavery in another land under another pharaoh, another king. So Exodus tells the story of how God raises up Moses, a king-like man, to lead them out of Egypt to the promised land. And as we read Exodus, we see how God uses this man and his rule, right? Moses ruled. In many ways, Moses ruled to lead his people. Moses has great power. He can do miraculous things. He talks with God. He even speaks for God. And it leaves us asking, is Moses the guy? Is he the seed? Is he going to be the one who crushes the snake? And is he going to be the one who rules God's people the way God wants him to? But all along the way, all through Exodus, we see how sin wreaks havoc on the lives of God's people. 
There is death. There are detours. There is idolatry. But right away, we see God making provision for sin. God makes provision for sin. And not only does he not bail on his promises, but he repeats his promises. The promises he made to Abraham's family, Israel. And then he expands them. He makes them bigger. Not only is God going to give Israel a land, and not only is he going to make them a nation, and not only is he going to bless them, and not only is he going to use them to bless other people, but now God has promised, I will dwell with you. I will live among you. You will be my people, and you will be a kingdom. You catch it? You will be a kingdom of priests to me. In spite of the sin problem, God uses sacrifices to make a way for him to dwell among his people. Sometimes it didn't go well, right? They were struck dead sometimes. But God is making a way through sacrifice to dwell with his people. Remember, he was like a cloud of fire or a pillar of cloud by night. He dwelt among them in the ark. Let's fast forward to Deuteronomy. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of sin, the people are now standing on the edge of the promised land. But the end of Deuteronomy ends with some uncertainty. We are no longer wandering if Moses is the guy. He is not the promised seed because even Moses, God's man, has done some pretty spectacularly stupid, sinful things. And what's going to happen? Moses dies where? outside the land. This definitely is not the guy. He dies outside of the promised land, reminding us, friends, what happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God's rule? Outside of the garden. Moses died outside of the promised land because of his sin, reminding us of the awful consequence that when we choose to live outside of God's rule, it leads to expulsion. What we're wondering about, though, is if the people will be able to obey Yahweh. In in Deuteronomy, there's these great blessings and curses that are promised depending on how the people obey. And it reminds us that if they obey God, God promises blessing. Okay, we love that part when we skip the next part. But if they disobey, there will be a curse. Well, curse, that reminds us of something that took place back in Genesis chapter 3. It's like God's creating it all again. Well, he is. If they disobey, there'll be a curse. But now there's a new leader, a new hero, a new king-like sort of guy appointed. And this is Joshua. And the book of Joshua is all about the conquest of the promised land. If the people follow Joshua, and if Joshua follows God, God will finally give the land that he promised Abraham and his descendants. Only the people were warned, do not forget Yahweh. At the end of Deuteronomy, there's this, exqu- there's this very clear warning that even says, you're not even going to be able to do this, that says, do not worship the other gods. Do not be like the other nations. Do not worship their idols. Do not marry with them. Do not be led astray by them. Why? Because you're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. How can you be a blessing to the nations if you're buying into all the same stuff that they've bought into? So Israel is sent into this land in many purposes and one of the things to do is even to be a blessing not to be corrupted to the nations. And as we come to the end of Joshua, 
it seems like God's done it. It seems like he has finally fulfilled it all. Think about it. The end of Joshua. Now they're in the land. Right? Check. Now they're a people. Several million. Check. And it seems like that they have God's blessing. There was peace among them. And they begin to dwell in their inheritance. But what comes after the book of Joshua? Judges. If you've read Judges, you know that the Israelites did not do so well with their newfound land and their newfound nation and their newfound favor. When we get to Judges, and Judges begins just one generation after Joshua's death. How long did it take them to wander from God? No time at all, right? One generation after the death of Joshua, and within just in a few years, the people of God have forgotten the one who parted the Red Sea. What idiots, right? How dare they? How could they ever forget God and disobey? Right? They have forgotten Yahweh. And not only that, but they explicitly forgot God's warning and they begin to worship the gods of the other nations around them. It's amazing to think about, but they wandered away. Once again, just like Adam and Eve, God's people are rejecting their king and choosing a new king. They want to rule themselves. They just don't want God as their king. And so what happens? Slowly, enemies start to creep back into Israel. They start creeping back into the promised land. And peace turns to unrest. And unrest turns to hostility. And hostility turns to captivity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before long, they find themselves with enemies surrounded all around them. Some of them are even carried off in captivity. But what do they do? Well, eventually they cry out to God for help. And God's solution is a savior called a judge, right? Small savior. God's solution for salvation at that time is judges. Now, judges are uh, like super warriors sent by God to rescue the people from their enemies. They, they were military leaders, but they weren't just military leaders, but they also carried on a, a judicial role. They helped bring order. They helped rule. They, it was a political and military type position. They were like kings, leading the people, supposedly, towards righteousness. Now, these judges were pretty interesting. These are the closest thing we see to Marvel superheroes in the Bible. And we see some interesting characters, but very quick, it does not take long to figure out. These guys, these girls, were flawed and sinful. They definitely were not the snake crushers, right? They may crush some heads, but they were not crushing the snake's head. And so begins the cycle of sin and grace that we learn about in Sunday school. The cycle is that people rebel against God's rule. So God gives them over to their enemies. The people cry out for help, and so God sends them a temporary military savior, a band-aid. He sends a a Gideon band-aid or a Samson band-aid. But soon, after the rescue, they forget God and turn back to their idols. Overall, the whole book of Judges is a downward spiral into chaos. Things look really, really bad. One of the key themes in Judges, one of the key problems we see is the problem of leadership. Bad, bad leaders. There's special emphasis placed on how much the leaders fail. Because remember, God rules his people through people. God rules the world through his people, people who obey him. People keep rejecting God's rule and their leaders were wicked. 
Okay, now let's think back to Genesis 12. Let's get an update on this big promise that God's done. Remember, God's promised he's going to send a seed to fix it all, right? And then he makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a land and you're going to be a blessing to the world through the seed. Where's it happening? What's, what's going on? Well, God has made Israel a great nation. He's given them a land, but sin is spoiling things. Sin is, for, because of sin, they are not enjoying God's blessing. They are experiencing curse. And they certainly are not a blessing to the nations around them. And so the book of Judges ends with a very important, very well-known, ominous verse. Let me just read this for you. Just listen carefully. You've probably heard it before, but think, think about this for a moment. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, so everyone ruled himself. Even though things are dark, the failure of the judges creates anticipation of a ruler who will come. That is a great word for the Old Testament. Anticipation. As you're reading, think about what should I be anticipating right now. They are, their anticipation builds for a ruler who is better than Moses, who is better than Joshua, who is better than Samson and the judges, but where is he? And when's he going to come? And how long, O oh Lord, and how will he rule this new people? Well, now from the book of Judges, you flip over to the next page in your Bible and you come to the book of Ruth, good. Some Bible drill folks in here, right? You come to the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is one of these books that can be kind of strange to study, right? It doesn't say much about, uh, it's like, how, how, what do we make of this? But we need to remember a couple things about this. Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. You could, if you were to, if you're trying to do this historically, you could pull Ruth out and shove it into Judges somewhere. It's, it's in the Judges uh, period of, of history. But Ruth is a story of conversion. Ruth is a conversion story. It's the story of how Boaz, an Israelite, marries a foreign woman who trusts in God. It's a conversion story. Now Ruth, okay, think about this for a moment. Ruth, who's not an Israelite, now she marries into Israel and she is grafted in to enjoy the blessings and the promises and the protection of being one of God's people. This is massively significant. What's one of the key verses you remember from the book of Ruth? And your people shall be, and my God shall be. Okay, think about that in the context now. She's saying, I get to be an Israelite, and I get your God, I get your blessings, I get your land. Do you see what's happening? All of a sudden now, Israel is starting to be a blessing to the nations. That is the significance here. But not only that, we're seeing Abraham's offspring is finally starting to bless the nations. But the book of Ruth ends with a very interesting genealogy. Yes, I just said that. A very interesting genealogy. Now, I'm terrified to pronounce some of the stuff. I was practicing this afternoon, and my mind is blank, so don't laugh. Let, let's, let's, think about this. let's think about this for a moment. Let, flip over into Ruth chapter 4. I want you to see this, mainly because you may not understand the words. <laughs> 
Ruth chapter 4. So turn to the very end, Ruth 4, 18. Okay, now before, before I read 18, let's actually look and read verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. So Ruth and Boaz have a son, and they, give him, they gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Rather, this is Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of who? Okay, when does David come into the picture? Yeah, this is, this is insane. Well, this was a hundred years before David is into the picture. Why are we reading about David now? David's the king. David is the king. This is a hundred years before David is born. And already we're told the point of Ruth, look ahead to the king. Look ahead to the king who is coming. Now if you look over in verse, uh, verse 18. One of the things I want to point out here is that this genealogy, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon. Right? Okay, so one of the things I want you to notice from the very beginning of this, because it goes on again to point out that we, we have the same ending. It ends with Jesse fathered David, which is exactly what we see in verse 16. But here's what's interesting. Do you know who Perez was? Perez was the first son of Judah. Do you remember? Who is going to come from Judah? The lion of the tribe of... The king is coming from Judah. This genealogy is pointing out specifically this is coming from Judah. This king is coming from Judah. A king is coming. Do you see what's happening? Ruth is ending. In the middle of the judges, when things are bleak, Ruth is ending on the hope the king is coming. Through all of this sin, through all of this darkness, through all of this failure, you cannot out God's promise. God will save his people. The king is coming. Finally, we're up to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Turn to 1 Samuel 1, chapter 1. You can't say I just did one verse tonight because I did, what, seven books. Let's, let's say that. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now chapter 1, if you're familiar with the book of Samuel, chapter 1 begins by telling us about the birth of another judge, the last judge. Samuel is the last judge, and he, but he's different. But Samuel begins with another genealogy. Now this is another very interesting opening. Let's, let's read this together. This is the hard pronunciation. Here we go. Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Raphaphim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkinah, the son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. This sounds like a salad my wife would make. <laughs> the son of Zuf, an Ephraphite, or a Paphrophite. He had two wives. The names of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, let's, th let's think about this for a moment. We come to another, ju uh, ju Ruth just ended with a genealogy, and now Samuel is opening up with a genealogy. So what I want to do, I want to draw your attention to one major 
point that is an introductory point to the book of Samuel, which I pray will feed your souls. It will introduce us to this book, but it's going to teach us about God and feed our souls. The folks who are in this genealogy are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Normally, in the Bible, right, we read some of the other ones, you have important guys. Or at least you have some folks that are important because they're related to important guys. But in this genealogy, we have a bunch of nobodies. These are a bunch of nobodies. But they're nobodies from a specific place. In the hill country of Ephraim. This is another word for Bethlehem. This is important. You see, if you were to read the book of Ruth, all throughout the book of Ruth, there is a huge emphasis on the reputation and the, or the, the, the repetition, rather, of, of Bethlehem. That out of Bethlehem, this great blessing, that out of, uh, this is the, name, the word that I practice all afternoon and I blanked, that out of Epiphath, uh, this great blessing was going to start to spread out and to bless the world. And then all of a sudden, we turn from Ruth, where Bethlehem is a central part, we turn the page to Samuel, then all of a sudden we see that a bunch of nobodies are coming out of Bethlehem, and that from these nobodies comes Samuel. And from, and as we get eventually to 1 Samuel 17, we're going to see that David comes from, guess what? Guess where he comes from? From Bethlehem. I think this is a key theological point. Because we know of another king who was to be born in Bethlehem to a couple of nobodies, don't we? In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, let me, listen carefully as I read this. You don't have to flip there, just, just listen carefully. Micah 5, verse 2, maybe jot this one down. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is what? A ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This is screaming at Jesus. Do you see this? Micah 5, 2, from you. You're too small to be important, but from you is going to come forth a ruler. And guess what? He's old. He is from old, from ancient of days. The prophecy here in Micah is fulfilled by Christ. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the first verse of the New Testament is what? Another genealogy, and it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I think that from this very first verse in Samuel, we are being introduced to a key theme that is central to the book of Samuel. That God delights to work in unexpected ways. That he loves to work in such a way to show that he has power, not man. It, he is going to showcase his, his power, not man's power. God delights to use nobodies from nowhere. Samuel is a book about a God who makes something out of nothing. He brings children out of barren wombs. He uses children to slay giants. He defeats armies. We'll see. It's my favorite stories. God defeats an army without Israel. He doesn't even invite them. He just uses the ark. Just the ark defeats an army, right? God defeats whole armies without an army. He is a God who is able to bring life from death, from something into nothing. He is a God who loves to work 
in upside-down, unexpected ways. Why? So that God gets the glory and we would stop stealing it from Him. He is God. Of course, you'll notice, if you know the story of Samuel, that the story of Samuel begins with a woman. A woman from nowhere, Hannah. We'll see next week that Hannah is a godly woman, but she's facing a crisis. She's barren. Why do we care, right? I mean, it's, in one sense, it's a very sad circumstance, right? If you have ever dealt with infertility, you know how painful it can be, but doesn't that seem like a strange thing to open the book with? The nation of Israel is in the middle of a national crisis. There's enemies all around them. Their leaders are wicked. People are given in to idolatry and were brought in to sympathize with a barren woman. Well, let's think back as we close over the ground that we've just covered. Hannah is not the first barren woman that we've encountered in the scriptures. What about Sarah or Sarai, the wife of who? Abraham. She was barren. She was, in fact, as good as dead. And it was when she, her womb was as good as dead that God gave her a promise that she was going to have children, right? Israel started from a barren womb. And then what about Rebecca, Isaac's wife? Okay, so this is second generation. She was barren until God opened her womb. Then what about Jacob's wife, Rachel? She was barren. Samson was born from a barren woman. And I cannot help but think ahead to who? Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who was barren until God gave her a child. And then we can't help but think of Mary. Though she was not barren, she was a virgin. Friends, God has a tendency to choose weakness, to choose instability, to choose the impossible as his starting point. Our barrenness, our helplessness, our hopelessness, our sinfulness is no barrier to his work of salvation. In fact, we see that this is how God loves to work. When the odds are stacked against his people, he loves to work when the Red Sea is ahead and Pharaoh's army is behind. He loves to work when it seems like his people will starve in the wilderness. He loves to work when the womb is empty, when the brook is dried up, when it's a boy standing in front of a giant. He loves to work when there's no room in the end, when the sky grows dark and it seems like Satan has won. God's just getting started. He does this so that we will say with David at the very end of Samuel, of 2 Samuel, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Who's a God but our Lord? Nobody. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you indeed are God. You are king, not us. Help us, O oh God, to submit to your rule and to rule the world in a way that pleases you, in a way that loves people and is a blessing to them. We ask this in your name. Amen.